My guest today is Lex McKee. Lex trains corporate professionals and trainers to deliver transformational results using accelerated learning. His strapline is the accelerated trainer, getting heroic results faster. Welcome, Lex. Thank you very much, Lawrence, for having me on the show. And uh, what a nice introduction. Yeah, and thanks for sharing it with us today. Let's begin our strat chat with this question as a way of introduction. Lex, where did you first start your business career and why there specifically? Great question. Thank you very much. I was very passionate about customer, what I called customer delight. So customer satisfaction is when we apply the service manual to the customer. Ergo, the customer must be satisfied. If we tick all these boxes according to our procedures and systems, happy customers. And I realized that was rubbish. You might remember a wonderful product called Bird's Eye Angel Delight. Do you ever come across that? I don't. I'm, I'm only being in the country a decade. So. I'm, not, I'm not even sure it was Bird's Eye. Angel Delight it was. It was a whip, a moose. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and that captured my imagination. I thought, what is customer delight? Uh, number one, it's defined by the customer, not by the organization. And if you've only been in the UK for a decade, then you've had long enough to experience <laughs> the lack of customer delight and spark that we sometimes have in our service givers. I therefore donned on my breastplate, my sword, my helmet, my shield, and started a campaign for customer delight as the customers defined it. That was my first training business. Customers are people too in organizational nexuses. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? But it stands for caption. That was my first company. And that, in turn, was provoked by a moment with a very famous brand on the high street. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say it. So I won't mention Dixon's photographic, uh, where I had one of my first sales jobs. And that was basically an order taker. Somebody at Dixon's had the vision and passion to get a company called Time Manager International. These, this was a company that was famous for the leather binders back in the 1980s to get control of your time. And they had turned British Airways around in terms of customer delight by doing a program called Putting People First. And they put the whole of Dixon's, the whole of Dixon's, I mean, what a commitment to customer delight through this amazing program. I'd never done any corporation, corporate training, never been on the receiving end of any corporate training. There I was, wet behind the ears, a service giver at Dixon's, an order taker. Went to Heathrow, to a lovely air, um, airport hotel for a couple of days, and probably sat there with my mouth open for two days. They shared with us stuff from NLP, neurolinguistic programming, from transactional analysis, from their own approach to time management. It was the best stuff I'd ever heard in my life. And for some wonderful reason, I went up after the two days to the presenters and asked a great question. And I said, how do you do what you do? I don't know where that question came from. That's a great coaching question, I think. So I'm not going to take any credit for that. And they leaned forward and they said, would you like to know the secret? And I said, yes. They said, it's two words. So I leaned in and they said, rehearsed spontaneity. Everything you saw in this corporate training was rehearsed. It just looked spontaneous. And I realized then that that was the kind of training that service givers needed 
They need to have almost theatre improvisation training. Very clear guidelines so that when the moment of truth, as they call it, Jan Carlson's excellent book, Moment of Truth, in that moment of truth, they have an opportunity to wow the customer having listened first so that they can wow the customer. Yeah, thank you. So, so after that, uh, what are the major milestones in your career that followed? Again, because of Time Manager International, uh, and I'd recommend you look them up if you're listening to this broadcast. Um, they explained how Scandinavian air services had gone, I think it was from an 80 million loss to an 80 million pound profit in 18 months. Wow. And the way they did that was going through this kind of program where they said, what business are we in? And the textbook answer was, we're an airline. And the visionary team at the top said, let's think about that again. I think we're in the business of serving the travel needs of the public. And everybody went, yes. That means the person that cleans the toilets for our airline needs to know check-in details. And what they did is this massive move towards putting the customer as their obsession. We talk about customer obsessed now as the focal point and they redefined themselves not as an airline, but as a service-giving organization that met the travel needs of the public. And I sat back and went, well, okay, I'm a trainer. Most people enjoy my training because it's quite entertaining. Could I be an entertainer? And that redefined my whole business. I, you know, it's not, you don't come on a course to be entertained. You go to the theater to be entertained. But if we can take important content, even health and safety, credit, checking any topic that you might normally associate with boring and apologies to our credit checking and other subjects there um every subject can be made engaging and the best example of that at the time we're talking three decades ago it's a long time ago when i started this was video arts and video arts was a video company do you know them i don't know Video Arts was a video company that starred and I think was owned by John Cleese of Monty Python fame. Right. And they did the most engaging videos. My favourite one, one of my favourite ones, was Ronnie Corbett, that tiny little comedian, and John Cleese, all in their city suits with their bowler hats on, talking about cash flow forecasts and balance sheets. Oh, right. And then sometimes they would sit in motor cars and drive around and do sales stuff. or They did crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, my, my favourite one... My other favourite one, I'm sounding like that lady from Lark Rice to Candleford. My one favourite one. Uh, my favourite one was Time Management with John Cleese of St. Peter. And I think it was James, was it Nolan, Bolan, the likely lads? I miss mean, such a long time ago. Very famous actor at the time. He was the incapable office manager who gave himself a heart attack. And he ends up at the gates of heaven where John Cleese is St. Peter. So he rings the doorbell and he goes, hallelujah. It's very, very funny stuff. You had to be there, really. Um, but the wonderful thing is this <laughs> James asks for a second chance and you get John Cleese or St. Peter going, oh, they always ask this. OK, but you've got to promise to do what I show you. And he shows him these great time management tips. So it was so rich in imagination. It wasn't the talking head to camera. It was just engaging stuff. So that then became the subject of my life's passion. 
and the subject of my book, The Accelerated Trainer, where I train trainers to use engaging, brain-friendly methods to take any subject and get people excited. Interestingly, you went to a company, they saw some potential, sent you on a course, and that set you on the way for training for the rest of your working life, it seems. It did, because of one moment of horror. Are you ready for a moment of terror? Yeah, why not? I had never experienced anything like this. You know, I was fresh out of college, never done any corporate training. I was completely blown away with it, completely engaged, motivated, inspired and excited. So I went back to my office, Dixon's, where I was a very junior member of staff. I said to the manager, this is amazing. We've got to put the customer first. And he said, (laughs) no, we need to get money in the till. And I knew (laughs) at that, exactly, I knew at that point, me and Dixon's, bye-bye. So Dixon's failure to really capitalize on such a huge investment is something I'm deeply grateful for because that launched me into business. That's a fantastic story. And, you know, to get into corporate training from one experience is just clearly, I mean, the ability was there. They just triggered it. Yes. Um, The passion was there. It's ironic, though, you know, like what's happened to Dixon. They're still chasing money from, from the grave. Yeah, I think it's just PC World now, isn't it? They, yeah. they was Comet, was Comet part of the group? Certainly PC yeah. World was part of the group. So PC yeah. World still exists. And I have had amazing service at PC World. Well, there you uh, go. But the challenge do. of spreading it across an organization, I mean, who would want that challenge? Yeah. It's like poor Theresa May trying to sort out Brexit. It's a, <laughs> it's a big one. We agreed to chat today about collaboration. Why do you think collaboration has an important role in strategy. I've, I've run my own companies for over three decades, and it's possible to run a business on your own, even though my natural strengths are clearly in certain areas and not in other areas. You can do it. Any entrepreneur can do it. It's a bit like the e-myth, if you're familiar with Michael Gerber's stuff. What I've come to realize, and quite late in my entrepreneurial life, because if you want a job doing properly, you do it yourself. Let's, let's not pretend nobody is going to do a better job until you find somebody who does a better job. And that process of finding that hero for your business is a painful one for many of us, certainly a painful one for me. And then I started studying an entrepreneurial Jungian-based profiling tool called Talent Dynamics when they do it inside organizations and wealth dynamics when they do it just for entrepreneurs. It's a wonderful Jungian-based idea of eight entrepreneurial types. What's the word? Wealth dynamics. And from that, you can recognize your strengths and realize that if you work on your weaknesses, all you will ever have is a strong weakness. Good point. Very, very systematically. It then gives you the minimum of two other types you must attract to your organization, not necessarily employees, but people to collaborate with, our golden word today, for you to have a robust business opportunity. And as a photographer, to me, I saw instantly my tripod with my camera. When I'm taking a picture, I need one focus. Let's say the business has one message like customer obsession. To support the camera and get the best possible photo, I must have three legs on my tripod. I'll take responsibility for one, but I now know the two other people. And the interesting thing is, again, if you want another horror story, 
these brilliant people took uh, wealth dynamics into organizations, told top teams what type of entrepreneur they were, and caused chaos. Because you would have senior managers going, ah, so I'm that kind of entrepreneur. Here's my resignation. (laughs) (laughs) So they did a very quick quick rebrand, basically the same tool, called it Talent Dynamics, so that you could be an intrapreneur and build a top team for the board. Okay, so succinctly then, what is collaboration and how does it benefit business? So collaboration for me, using that tool and the insights I've got from it, is balancing the energies. And energy sounds a bit new age, a bit sort of tree huggy, etc. But I, I can ask you, Lawrence, what really gets you to jump out of bed? What motivates you? A whiteboard and a few people around. A whiteboard and a few people around. So we know even from that delicate little sentence there, that short sentence, that there's something about extroversion. You need people energy to get you going. And there's an eye for detail. And in the simplest terms of the four parts, this is an eight part model, but the four raw energies, you've got energy there from steel, which is systems to go onto the whiteboard. Let's map this out. And then you've got the people skills as well, which is what we call the blaze energy. Right. Now, my main energy is dynamo, which is the creative energy. And without being rude about myself, I don't need other people. I will be up at four o'clock in the morning with the most amazing idea that nobody is ever going to buy, but it's burning with me with such passion that I will be up and I'll have to write it down. My poor, the poor lady that looketh after me, bless her, you know, (laughs) I've disrupted her sleep yet again because she turns over and I'm not there because I'm up with this amazing plan. You can guess that those amazing plans don't always bear fruition because I'm not using the blaze energy of getting people on board. I'm not using the steel energy of rinse and repeat. Let's get a system that we can replicate. And I'm not using the tempo energy, which is get it in the diary. Let's have a project plan here. (laughs) I now know that I'm off the scale creative. If I'm ever to have that multi-millionaire business that I'm after, I need you, Lawrence. And I need one other. (laughs) Wow, wonderful story. Thank you. Many say that collaboration isn't a strategy, it's a necessity. What's your view and why? I think it's, to use another great word in management circles, is synergy, where two plus two equals four or five or six or seven, if you get the energies right. My biggest barrier is the biggest barrier that every entrepreneur like you faces. It's got a number on it, and it's 168. Wow. We have 168 hours a week. Life is utterly fair in that one area. The richest person in the world has 168 hours a week. The poorest person in the world has 168 hours a week. We don't have the same access to water. We don't have the same access to fresh air. We don't have the same access to education. But when it comes to time and the way we measure it, 168 hours a week. That's the canvas I have to deal with. And of course, You've hit it. I've hit it. Nearly everybody we know who's doing anything worthwhile has hit the 168-hour ceiling. Unless I can leverage and collaborate with somebody else's talents, energy, and time, I am never going to scale my business. So I think collaboration is absolutely essential. Great answer. Um, What preparation must managers do 
before starting a collaboration culture or process? For me, it's two models. And they are not divine truth. So there are other models at work as well. You might be using DISC or anything else that, that values the difference. The collaboration for me is a, is a couple of things, leveraging other people's time, but also their talents. So I need to attract people who are different to me to free up my time to do what I'm good at 80% of the time. We call it flow, being flow 80% of the time, but also what they're good at 80% of the time. So number one, then, is to recognize the diversity of talent we require to free up our time. Number two is what you desire in life is, I'm so glad to say, so different from me. So, Lawrence, if you won the lottery and time was not a problem and money was not a problem, how would you spend your time? Canoeing. Canoeing. <laughs> Excellent. I would love to collaborate with you. So to collaborate with you, I would share with you our corporate goals because I need you to make a maximum contribution to us reaching our corporate goals. When my friends who used to build my websites took me canoeing, I nearly died. I'm quite plump. I'd had no background. They stuck me in a canoe and I overturned straight away. Ooh. It was a very, very exciting moment. And their faces, when they rescued me from the water, were brilliant. I've never seen so pale a face <laughs> in a pair of lovely gentlemen. Um, so canoeing's not going to do it for me. But if I say, Lawrence, if you will work with me wholeheartedly towards our collective corporate goals, I will promise you I will work with all my heart to satisfy your needs so that you have more free time to go canoeing. In fact, I'll even sponsor you to set up a canoeing club in the organization. How would you feel? I would say if it's at Loch Ken or any one of the Scottish lochs, I'm in. Fantastic. So we've, we've refined maximum satisfaction for you. And then I would scale that back and I'd say, Lawrence, we can't do canoeing all the time at work. What would give you a buzz at work? What would give you maximum satisfaction at work? Maximum, again, yeah, round tables, whiteboards, informality, uh, idea generation, collaboration on on finding solutions for difficult questions fantastic but your ideas suck lawrence <laughs> sorry say again i said your ideas suck okay well that's fine but that's what that's what would get me going exactly and forgive me for being little a little bit naughty there so i'm reading into what you're saying that you want to be valued for your ability to bring the team together with great ideas that solve real business issues. Probably know from my business card that uh, I'm affectionately known as a tough questions consultant. Excellent. I think questions are the the way to unlock you know people's misgivings about difficult topics. I agree. And what I was seeking to do there was hit at the the point. And, and listeners, forgive me there. I would never ever say that. In real life, this is not real life, this is a recording. <laughs> My point is, Lawrence must be valued for his talent. So if yeah. you came up with a solution inside our organization that I disagreed with, I would need to put in a collaborative strategy where I go, let's use that as a stepping stone. I can see where you're coming from. I've got some reservations, which I'm going to hold back for now. Let's run with that idea and expand it with the team's help to amplify it and see where we get to. 
that to me, you've got three strands there. You've got the recognition of the difference of talents we need to make a team work, the essential nature of what's called the X model of engagement, where maximum contribution to the organization is hit by the sweet spot of maximum satisfaction from being in the organization. If you get those two right, you get engagement. And then some good old-fashioned manners training on how to empower people. I'm hoping, in a sad kind of way, that you've got an energy vampire in your life, a mood hoover. <laughs> Have you got somebody in your life that sucks the energy out of you? Oh, God, yes. I, even... <laughs> I shouldn't comment further. No, no comment. <laughs> we all have them in our lives because they're sent to teach us, bless them. But um, they're not our favourite teachers, are they? They're like some teacher at school that you would really rather avoid. So we need training in what motivates people. We talk about flow, get the talent, and we talk about fuel, what keeps the talent buzzing. And that makes for good collaboration. Because if you don't, there's a thing called the water cooler, which people will gather around as a team, and they'll collaborate to destroy your ideas and your business works both ways so so in your personal view lex on the use or abuse of collaboration in the workplace what have you seen what have you experienced my biggest concern that i've seen over the years is talented motivated people becoming disengaged yeah what happens is the ones i'm most concerned about are the ones who are still giving top contribution to the organization might be working long hours they're giving their best ideas they're giving the best years of their life but they've ceased to get maximum satisfaction which is why i was interested in your canoeing and now you've told me your location these are key things for you for you the job is an end in itself the team building the working asking the difficult questions around the table to bring out the best that's a fuel for you correct but if yeah. that ceased to, start, to, to work at the same level, there would be a tendency for you to do one of three things. Either we get you re-engaged, please God, or you quit and leave at great cost to the organisation because you're not getting the satisfaction anymore. And even more dangerous, you quit and stay. So you stay in role, and I've seen this with many senior teachers who won't leave school because they've got um, pensions that have to be protected and they've lost their passion for teaching and they quit and stay and they turn off generations of children to their subject. I hope you had a teacher who got you excited about chemistry or biology or history. No, no, no. I, I relate to what you're saying. I think, in fact, many probably do. Um, the other sort of enemy of collaboration, I would think, is the groupthink. Yeah. Just give me a little bit more there too. Well, you know, in the decades that I've been involved in consulting, it's it's quite worrying to me often when, you know, you as you say, get into a flow, um, ideas are, are coming through thick and fast. And when the decisions come, the, the heads just keep nodding and and <laughs> people just keep agreeing. And clearly there's some very tough questions that need to be asked to pull the train to an abrupt halt, just to check on a few things, and it doesn't happen. And, you know, you as the instigator or the, you know, the gremlin, the devil in the detail, mm. has to be the one that asks the question. Obviously, as a facilitator, I'd like somebody in the management team to say, hold on a minute, 
this is brilliant. However, we just need to ask a few questions and, and that everybody understands what we're agreeing on here, on here. And inevitably, my biggest problem, and it's not about what I see, but I'm actually asking you, when everybody just agree, agrees, groups think that everybody just agrees because the, the MD or the CEO is agreeing. And, and anyway, we're running close to tea time. So, hey, why not? I mean, that's, a, you know, the reports go out and very little feedback on the reports come back and signatures of acceptance are just uh, handed in just because it's easier. And I absolutely hate that. That's not collaboration. You need what you described earlier, you know, the, the diversity of opinion and different skills. And permission to put the spanner in the works. Exactly. Uh, one, one of the blogs that you may or may not have seen was I, I was talking about Boeing and the current crisis with the 737 MAX. Somebody at Boeing, Boeing used to be an organization of engineers who had a passion for aviation. And then critically, they moved all the key decision makers who were not engineers to Chicago, which I think is 1,600 miles away from the production places, the main production plant. And it became physically, not impossible, but physically difficult for engineers to say, to flag up concerns with people who were putting stakeholder value above everything else, profit before people. And they are going to reap uh, a whirlwind on that. I mean, it's 240, I think it's 346 lives lost so far because oh. the ability for a manager and a leader to walk in to an engineering area and have a frank face-to-face conversation was made almost impossible, improbable. Let's not say impossible. Therefore, if we've got the people around that round table that you're talking about with the whiteboard, there needs to be, I'm, I'm shocked at this, but there needs to be permission to put your hand up and go, just hang on a minute. Ford is another favorite one. Do you know the Ford Pinto? Yes, yes. Do you know the, the story behind the Pinto? No. The Pinto was the first very low cost production vehicle. They wanted to produce it for about $2,000. And the engineers had a solution to a very real problem that emerged and the problem was the fuel tank was in the wrong place for a low speed collision if you had a low speed collision the fuel tank would rupture and fuel would be spilled under the car with great danger to life the fix was a known fix because they'd done it with another car model that they created so you can put protective stuff around the fuel tank or you can even move the fuel tank they actually sat down the leadership team and worked out that if people burned to death because of a low-speed collision in a Ford Pinto, they reckoned the court costs would be a maximum of $49 million. The changes which they knew what they could do... I'm just hoping you're not going to tell me that the court cases were going to be lower than the cost of the fix. Yeah, the cost of the fix was $113 million. So they judged $49 million as a risk worth taking against the costs the first court case involving a near fatality the judge was so outraged he charged them i think it was 125 million which was then challenged they got it down to 3.5 million but the point was they put stakeholder value over people yeah you can't be doing that 
Well, you know, this thing about permission, I can't remember the name of the computer company, but they separated, you know, hardware development and software development. And they, you had to get permission to ask basically what you've just said. When either wanted to know what the other one was doing, they would ask either ask customers or suppliers because <laughs> they, had, they had a sort of a macro view of what this company was doing, which is, you know. I did hear a, a story of a production factory where half the factory was divided in half by a giant safety curtain. Uh-huh. And the two departments that took to make this production line would not talk to each other because of the curtain. And so you get to the point where there were finished pieces of work piling up by the curtain because nobody had the permission or drive to go through the curtain and find out what was happening on the other side. To be practical for our listeners, I used to teach Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. Yeah, yeah, I know it. I like it very much. I found in my own experience, so it's a prejudiced saying I'm going to say here, Um, let the listener go and explore for themselves. It's a brilliant model. It was too complex. Six was too much. So what I do now is I use a four-color pen, easily available. You remember the big click pens? Yeah, I use them myself. Love them. Uh, Black, red, green, blue, for four thinking styles that anybody in the team can think about. And I've used it with the whiteboard as well, you know, the four colors around the whiteboard. Black is the data, black and white thinking, the black box thinking. You think in terms of Boeing, give me the facts. What are the difficult questions? What are the risks? What would happen if it went wrong? And we just do black ink thinking for as long as the team want to. And if anybody comes up with a black ink thought when we're not using the black ink, we just park it so that it's not lost. The red ink I use for okay what's the action what are we going to do as an output that might be the last thing we do but it can also be the first thing what's the why what are we seeking to achieve here my green ink which would have saved Boeing and Ford millions and a lot of reputational damages what's the bigger picture what are the consequences for the people what's the ecology the green ecology and then the blue ink I use for blue sky thinking if money is not a problem If time's not a problem, if we could achieve excellence, how would we do that? What would we create? What would we do? And I found using just a simple four-color ink process, I'm very, very good good at the blue ink, for example, I can self-manage my own creative madness. So I get my blue ink out, go, yeah, we could do this, we could do that and do the other. And then I deliberately get the black ink out and go, yeah, what's it going to cost? What could go wrong? Give me the facts. Have you done some research? I know you want a new computer. How much is it? Where are we going to get it from? Have you got three suppliers? Et cetera, et cetera. And with that four-color process, a bit like printing, then you make sure that you collaborate with your team or with yourself if you haven't got a team. Alex, where do you think there's a high degree of success and competence with collaboration in, the, in business? I've worked primarily in the charity field. And where I've seen the most rewarding and exciting models is where the team share the same values. I'm, I'm active in the more sort of charismatic church movement, for example, and you see people volunteering to take the food to the poor, volunteering to do the teas and coffees, volunteering to do the children's work, volunteering to clear up afterwards, stuff that you go, do you mean I have to do that? Ugh. And they're volunteering. Because there's a bigger vision. There's a bigger why. 
My favourite organisation at the moment is one called B1, that's the number one, uh, written as a number, not as the word, B1G1.com. Have you come across them? Nope. B1G1 stands for Buy One, Give One. Oh, it's, okay. It's a network of people globally. They've given over, I don't know how many million impacts now. It's in the millions. And the idea is that... Um, Let's let's take your passion for difficult questions. If you went and did a consultancy with an organization where you help them to ask the right questions, there would be a buy one, give one project that matched that educational insight. So you might say to your client, thanks for paying for my consultancy services. I didn't say this up front because I didn't want to put it in your face, but I want to thank you even more because what we do as an organization is every time we do a consultancy service, we pay for children in India to get that education to ask the same kind of good questions to learn how to think. So there'll be a project that matches what you do. When I do video production for people, there's, did you know that you can save somebody's eyesight for a dollar? For a dollar. There are certain areas of the world where an eye drop that costs a dollar prevents a parasitic problem and they keep their sight. So every time I was doing video work for people and saying, right, thank you for that. And I really appreciate your business. And by the way, here's a certificate to say thank you. You've saved the site of 27 people. How would you feel about that? Incredible um, concept. I mean, I'm just thinking when I first started out in consulting three decades ago, people weren't thinking like this. My point is people are gagging to join buy one, give one. Because it's that bigger vision. Yeah. And if you can buy into a bigger vision, is it Tom's shoes that gives a pair of shoe for everyone they sell? You're not just buying shoes. You're buying the gift of shoes, paying it forward to somebody who can't afford them. It's just, I mean, oh. it's, a, it's a big motivator. Do you think this bubble will ever burst? You know, like things trend and then they don't. I do. I think there's, a, there's a, such a high level of cynicism that journalists are looking out for something to prove that it's not working. Um, I don't think the bubble's going to burst. I think the bubble's going to be under pressure. I'm leaping out of bed in the morning because I'm exciting, excited about the difference I can make Yeah. Um, with collaborating with these amazing people around the world. So. Yeah. Now, managers often try and get around the task of collaboration because they feel, you know, the people in their group are a bit diverse or they're, won't get it quick enough, it'll be too expensive. But I'd like to know from you how collaboration leverages the differences that team, team members have, especially regards the diversity of skills and competencies. I think it's a difficult path, and we should be honest about that and ask some of those difficult questions. Every time I've tried to collaborate with people, and that's a horrible use of a generalization, let's say most times, yeah. I've sought to collaborate with people in the past. It hasn't gone well. I think collaboration needs a safety framework and a clarity framework so that everybody knows what to do. Because I'm running my own business and there isn't the budget to buy in staff, there's no power of the, the money. So there's no risk of losing their livelihood when people I seek to collaborate with don't do it well. However, I've learned over many years the recipe. And a great example is the person that taught me talent dynamics. He did talent dynamics with his team, his existing team, 
and it came out that several of them were in the wrong role for the energy they needed to keep them motivated. I said, well, this is, this is interesting because I love my team. I said, how do you feel about this? And one of them then had the permission, because they had the tool to express their thoughts. I said, I've been looking for a new job. And he said, what? He said, I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to let you down, but I am so unhappy doing what I'm doing. He kept the same team, changed the roles around, and their productivity skyrocketed. Fantastic. To get buy-in from all the participants, tell me about the impact and influence that you as a facilitator need, and are these skills readily available? I think we're in a very, very good time, Lawrence, where um, these tools are easily available. The profile I'm talking about, for example, is $97. It's, it's an America, it's an international thing for the profile with a debrief. Who would not invest 100 bucks in keeping a valued team member and keeping them motivated? Right. So providing there is that commitment to your team, your investment in people, I think the entry point is quite acceptable. I might go into an organization with a team of five, for example, and for 500 quid, not dollars, because we're in the UK here, that's, that's a sizable investment for the organization if it's a small to medium enterprise. But if it keeps the team working together at double the productivity, I figure, well, I'd pay that. Right. Collaboration requires trust especially when sharing strategic information. What advice can you offer regards managers that want to use transparency to create context but don't want unnecessary risks? It's, again, a bit like bringing up children in the sense that you must have clear parameters. The clearer I am as a leader and a manager about what is accepted, what's permissible, and what isn't, the more transparent I am, I believe in something we call pacing and leading in, in mirroring. Have you come across that before? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if I, if I demonstrate a behavior, then that gives other people permission to do it. If the culture they come into is toxic, where you find managers and leaders holding on to information because it suits their power base, who's going who's to share? Nobody but a naive new hire who will soon learn that the price of sharing openly is not a good return on investment. So yeah. they have to have that. Let me model. Let me be the leader I want you to be. Let me show you the behaviors, the beliefs, the capabilities that I would like to see in you as you develop within this organization. So important to me is the question, how should teams keep their collaboration in alignment with their company strategy? I'm going to recommend an, another company for your listeners to have a look at. It's called LexisClick, L-E-X-I-S, click, all one word, dot com. They do a really interesting free module on vision and mission, and their definition of vision is the future of your industry. And it doesn't have to have your company in it. It's like a futurist going, I believe in 2025, in 2030, it's going to be like this. Then the mission is saying, I'll take that portion of that future as our company. Sitting under that has to be the values, the rules, the rules of the game that we play in our organization. I was going to ask you, for example, when you do that facilitation round the table with the whiteboard, are you wearing a tie or is your collar unbuttoned? 
I, I don't think I own a tie. <laughs> so in the golden days of IBM, if I asked you to come in in a dark suit with a tie, you'd already be in a problem when it came to collaboration. You go, don't be ridiculous, Lex. It's a tie. But it's not ridiculous. What you smell, what you see, what you hear, what you say, all these things are examples of permission or suggestions of not to, they're barriers to collaborating. You know, I must tell you a story quickly. My last corporate job was with uh, Unilever, and they have these sort of six weekly cycle meetings. And I, in those days, had a tie and a beard. And I got fined for having a beard because that was not allowed. And I got fined. I was wearing a tie, but I wasn't wearing a branded tie. So I got fined for that as well. I promptly resigned. And then in in South Africa, where I come from, I went overseas. I went over, I came to England and I got rid of all my ties instead of, except one knitted maroon tie. I remember having that. And, we, and I started working on my own account and I, and I actually wore that knitted tie every day, yeah. you know, to wherever I was going because the only tie I had. But subsequently, some customers have been quite amused at me because I, I can arrive at a consultation, you know, coming from a walk. So I'll be wearing hiking boots and <laughs> into, the, <laughs> into the boardroom. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But no, um, ritual and suits and that doesn't impress me at all and i won't participate in that nonsense no and it is nonsense now and that's that's the nice thing about these new generations that are coming through that are asking the difficult questions that are thinking for themselves and are demanding a whole different level of collaboration and engagement my eldest son works for scent air which is an american company global now that pump scent into corporate situations and retail situations to change behavior I mean, how amazing yeah. is life when you realize what you smell affects your behavior. The lighting around that whiteboard, the size of the table is going to affect the outcome. The size oh. of the sofas and the size of the speakers for the music. Exactly. Everything. And it's a coffee machine, sir. Yep. And is it good coffee? Because exactly. if it's crap coffee, it's saying something about the way you value your employees, your yeah, teammates. the coffee's bad, you abandon the meeting and you go outside. Yep. I want to ask you, what are the three most important things managers need to do to ensure that their people's ideas get FaceTime? I, I do use that, that four-color process deliberately to make sure that there is plenty of time and space for the blue sky thinking. So we would sit around the table together, regardless of the numbers of people there. And I would say after a little bit of training, okay, it's blue sky thinking now. You can have any of the other thinking you like, just park it on your notepad. Then have a four-color pen. So I go, right, blue sky thinking, there is no judgment, there is no criticism. It's just hypothesis and opportunities. What could we achieve? What would you what would excite you? as being a member of my team, as we bring this new product and this new service to market. Tell me, what would give you a buzz? And then I would let them have that. Because I, I have empathy blockers on my timeline. These are people who go, ah, oh, yes, we tried that, but. And of course, but is a, another yeah. word that's used for bum in many, <laughs> many organizations, many cultures. And I'm quite disruptive, I'm, you know, 
mum would have told me off, bless her. God rest her memory. Because I got into this, the stage with one of my teams where every time somebody would say, but I'd just shout out arse. And they, <laughs> and they go, they go, what? I said, you just said, but. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I said, let's, let's play with and. While we're in the blue pen phase, and is an amazing word. And it's a core of improvisation. If you've ever studied any improv, um, Second City in Chicago, their most famous principle is yes and. So we were acting together. I go, oh, I've just got off my spaceship, Lawrence. It's amazing. And you go, there's yes, no spaceship. And- Suddenly it's dead, isn't it? Yeah. But if you go, yes and, yes. Well, let's have a go. Go on, you, you were going to leap in there with a good yes and. Exactly, yes and. And so, so the conversation goes. I, you know, Lex, you've, you, I must just say your four-color uh, method is so memorable that, I mean, I myself remember it after hearing it once. Excellent. So that's an incredibly powerful uh, and, and mobile. I think people will take it on easily and, and use it. And then, of course, as soon as they realize there's more to it, they can call you. <laughs> but that would be I'd nice. Like to, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to end our stretch at today, as we always do, with a short questionnaire. Right. So if you'll just bear with me, Lex, and say a couple of personal questions just to get to know you a bit better. Who do you admire most in business today and why? Dan Sullivan. And there was no hesitation there at all. Dan Sullivan heads up strategic coach. He's in his late 70s now. He has no intention of retiring ever. Believes he's going to live to about 140, I think. He coaches entrepreneurs who earn over 150,000 a year. So that it's a very protected group of peers. And he's never said anything where I haven't gone, wow, that's insightful. So Dan Sullivan, strategic coach, number one. Great. What are the th- what are your three favorite brands that you still use regularly? Marmite, because of the <laughs> like it or loathe it. I love salty stuff anyway, anchovies and umami. Um, but Marmite, I really rate highly. I suppose it's not a, I'm a passionate lover of good coffee. Asda, dare I say it, Asda do a really good Brazilian blend that I would go out of my way like Taylors of um, Yorkshire. What's Taylors? They do a rich Italian. So these rich, rich coffee flavours are an essential part of my daily routine for me to feel good. If I don't have my coffee in the right way, I don't feel quite so good. The other brand I really like is Bose, the music brand. Oh, yeah, the speakers. I I bought one of their mobile systems. I'm, I'm doing it with my hands here which isn't really going to help your listeners is it it's about the size of a pilot's case if you remember the the case that many reps would carry into an organization this thing was good enough for a room of up to 50 people all in one it had batteries as well if you wanted it to do it was hugely expensive back when i bought it over two decades ago so it was a grand but i wanted my students in my workshops to have really good sound this thing, which cost me a grand, the most I'd ever paid on anything portable, broke two days out of guarantee. Oh. Yes, exactly. Now, here is an opportunity for a brand to brand into your memory for the good reason or the bad reason. I ring them up and they say, Mr. McKee, I'm sorry, your Bose is out of guarantee, out of warranty. 
how do you feel about a 50-pound courier fee? I said, <laughs> tell me more. I said, you give us 50 pounds for the courier and we'll send you a new unit. I oh, wow. love bows. <laughs> Lovely. So are you positive or negative at the moment about business prospects in the UK? Emshire in particular. I, I am most excited I've ever been. Or I'll try that in English again. I am the most excited I've ever been. I voted green. There you go. I've gone public now in the elections. And I'm delighted that Boris got in because we're going to have a degree of certainty now and stability that lets even us greenies have a firm foundation to build for the future. I'm seeing the buzz in the networking meetings I'm going to. We've got a Hampshire networking meeting in Chilworth at the end of this week. There is a definitive shift in people's level of expectation for the future. So I'm very positive. Great. If you were given a million pounds, what would you do with it? Uh, rebuild my recording studio. I used to have a recording studio out in a farm somewhere where it's nice and quiet, and I would make the album that John Lennon wanted to listen to. As In one of his interviews, he said, I haven't yet heard that album that spans generations that really captures my imagination. He, sing, he sung Imagine. I would like to write the music and record that album that John Lennon would have gone. That'll do. That's the one. I'd love to ask you about about your writing abilities and playing abilities, but I'm going to ask you another question. Instead. Okay. Okay. What is your favorite business book that you would recommend? Oh, I've actually gone goosey because there's a bit in me that doesn't want to tell you. <laughs> 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 but I'm going to be generous. And the reason I don't want to tell you was because any coach that is in my network, if they get hold of this and actually put it into practice, it will revolutionize their coaching business more than any other book I've ever read. So it's called Building Your Story Brand by oh, Don right. Miller. Building Your Story Brand by Don Miller. And listeners, you can do the system for free at mystorybrand.com. It's stunning. Yeah, I actually have that book. But anyway, uh, and, and it's as great as you um, imply. What piece of technology do you value the most at the moment? My mobile phone. I don't know how you can be an entrepreneur nowadays without uh, your phone. Mine's an iPhone. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. okay lo <laughs> last couple of questions. Who's the most famous person that you've worked with? <sighs> well, I, I moved down to Dorset to work with the organization that I admired the most at the time, which was Tony Buzan's organization. Yeah, um, the mind mapping. The mind mapping, speed reading, memory. I mean, the man, we lost him last year. Um, the man was phenomenally brilliant and a good example of collaboration because he was hyper-creative, a very, very prolific writer, but didn't do the, the systems side of it. So he collaborated with the most wonderful woman you could ever hope to meet a lady called van der north who's still with us thankfully and she set up buzan centers round the world with teams so that tony could fulfill his bigger vision which was the percentage of the population mentally literate by 2020 yeah i remember tony buzan's books i remember having this big uh, blue book with some yellow in the middle a mind map in the middle can't remember what it was called actually but i did find it a bit complicated to get into as a first-time user but his ideas and 
you know, what he had in mind. I think he was so way ahead of everybody when he first published. He, he, if, if you're listening to this and you've got a copy of a book called Use Your Head, the original BBC one, that's what launched things for Tony. It was Open University. They did a series of videos and it was hilarious. So it was turtleneck time with giant collars. And one of the exciting things he shared with his listeners was a laser. It was a bit like um, Austin Powers, yeah. where Dr. Evil does the finger thing, he goes, laser. You know, this, this was exciting stuff. And he was ahead of his time. However, he helped thousands upon thousands of open university students make the most of their brains, make the most of their mind by collaborating with some different techniques. I love mind mapping. I mean, I've, I've worked with some people who I think struggled with narrative, with, with lists, and they liked colors and shapes. And I actually ran a whole day training course using mind maps, and they got it quickly and contributed and co- collaborated easily. It's Mind maps are just, uh, they kind of suit my brain anyway. The truth is they suit every single person's brain on the planet. I get a lot of people who say to me, I can't draw, which is something we can work through anyway. Yeah. And then, oh, I'm not a visual learner. And you go, <laughs> yeah. okay, so the fact that X percentage of your brain is dedicated to visual processing is not working for you at the moment. That's okay. We can address that when you're ready. However, the fact is this massive part of your visual cortex is dedicated to visual processing. And anything that uses visual spatial memory is set to succeed. I don't know if you've ever remembered a telephone number or an alarm code by the shape. Have you ever done that? No. Ah. See, I should have put my hands together in the prayer position then, shouldn't I? Because some people remember their phone numbers and particularly unlocking the phone by the shape they draw. Visual spatial intelligence is hyper powerful. Back in World War II, when clocks were proper analog clocks, it saved your life because they had bandits at two o'clock. <laughs> and these digital kids are going, oh, I don't know where two o'clock. Oh, I'm dead. Lex, uh, you yeah. may have answered this question, but quickly, who could you single out one person who taught you the most in business? Who, who would that be? It's actually going to be Dan. Uh, Tony taught me the most about how to make the most of my mind, but didn't make me a better business person. Not because that was his intent. His his intent was this ability to think and ask the questions and have radiant thinking is what he called it. This this exponentially expansive thinking. And I'm very, very grateful for Tony. But it's about Dan Sullivan who's given me the structure to go, right, this is how you build an entrepreneurial business that works without you, yet continues to add value. My time, coming back to the 168 hours a week, is my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. Right. And anything I can do to free up my time in exchange for value. So I'm not talking about some get-rich-quick scheme where people are having to pay through the nose for something that no longer serves them. I'm talking about building assets, like educational assets, consultancy assets. We sell the Think Pen, for example, the four-color pen, where people can go on enjoying that product without having to have my time involved. That is the big thing I've learned from Dan. Thank you. Uh, Lex, my final question is, in your business career, what would you most like to be remembered for? In my business career, 
I started teaching accelerated training because two teachers changed my life. As, as a young person, many of our young people do not have the confidence to match their competence. They have a self-image that's developing and needs strong, influential people to help them grow into their competence. And I had two teachers who saw in me the gift and they poured in belief. I actually can't remember what they taught me. I knew what subjects they covered. I don't remember what they taught me. What they did is they went, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. I don't think they ever said, I believe in you. But everything about their culture, the classrooms they created and their interactions with me said, we believe the best in you. And eventually I gave in to their bullying and believed in myself. My good lady paid me the biggest compliment I've ever had in my life. She said, you bring out the me in me. And that's what I want to be remembered for. I want to come into people's lives like yours, Lawrence, and go, do you know what? There's an element of you that I don't think you've seen yet. I think is just stunning. And let me keep telling you how amazing you are in that specific area. So it needs to be specific so that people, it's not some warm generality. It's a beautiful, specific, a terrific specific until you give up Lawrence and you go I agree with you Lex I'm amazing at Ta-da. that's it lovely answer thank you Lex McKee thank you for joining us and sharing your thoughts and insights on StratChat today much appreciated thank you contact Lex on by LinkedIn for instance please just type in Lex McKee where you'll find a link to message him till next time on StratChat goodbye